Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today on episode 203, we are finishing The Arm of the Sphinx by Josiah Bancroft. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and joining me again is Lauren McCaffrey. Sup, guys? <laughs> Make sure that one doesn't explode like a grenade. <laughs> uh... Hmm. Yeah, probably pour it pretty quickly. Yeah. We'll talk about that beer at the end of the show. <laughs> uh, but before we head into the episode itself, a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content, such as exclusive episodes, exclusive original fiction, and much more. We return to the story as the Stone Cloud limps its broken way up the tower and approaches the guarded entrance to the Sphinx's lair. The doors open for them at just the last moment, and they're quickly grabbed by a monstrous mechanical titan. The mechanical stag, Byron, greets them at the dock and takes the crew further in, where they finally meet the Sphinx, an enigmatic figure shrouded in robes and with a mirror for a face. The Sphinx takes Edith's arm and negotiates a deal with Thomas. He will get them entry to Pelthia in return for Thomas's work as a spy. But first, Thomas must prove his sobriety to the Sphinx, and is stranded in the bottomless library to find a book and ride out his withdrawals from Crumb. Meanwhile, the rest of the crew is set up in an apartment. The Sphinx intends to interrogate all of them, and Edith particularly fears for Adam, as she thinks he's a prime candidate for the Sphinx to suborn. In the dead of night, she and Adam sneak out and take a mechanical steed up the side of the tower, all the way to the top, where they discover that the stories are true. They find trees of silver and veins of gold running through the ground, but they also find the sparking men who apprehend them. One recognizes Adam somehow and takes him into custody. Adam convinces them to let Edith go, and she returns to the apartment below. While all that was happening, Valletta was busy sneaking out for her own business. What began with chasing Squit through the vents turned into a genuine friendship with the Sphinx, who was revealed to be an ancient woman kept alive through the technology of the tower. Senlin spends ten days in the library, where he survives a trap and follows the cat librarian further and further down. He gradually weans from the effects of Crumb, and the rooms begin to shrink until he gets stuck in a cramped tunnel under a landslide of books. After he records his goodbye to the world, a slide opens under him, dumping him, and the book he was looking for, in a hidden room. The Sphinx awaits and reveals more secrets of the tower. The Bricklayer built it not as a tower, but as a bridge to the stars. However, the technology of the Bricklayer's time was not advanced enough, and he sealed his secrets away in a vault. The vault can only be accessed by one who has all 64 of Ogier's paintings, viewed through the Grand Zoetrope, which will reveal the code. Edith also makes a final deal with the Sphinx, agreeing to become the personified arm of the Sphinx. She's given a huge new arm and returned to the apartment. After Senlin rejoins the remaining crew, he visits her in the night, and they share a kiss, which is viewed by the Sphinx via a mechanical spying butterfly. The Sphinx gives them the use of the amazing ship State of Art, and names Edith the captain before retiring to her own quarters, where she not only watches Senlin and Edith's kiss, but also a recording of Maria, far below in Pelphia, where she has given birth to a child. Oh, man. Yeah. So, uh, keeping the finger on the pulse, how do you, how'd you like it? This is my favorite part so far. Yeah, this was really strong. Yeah. The second half of this book, like, I think I... Uh, last episode, I said that I enjoyed the first half of Arm of the Sphinx more than the second half of Sen Ascends, but less than the first half. Um, this is for sure my favorite 
so far. I think this is a better book overall than Senlin Ascends. Um, man, did Bancroft nail the, the landing at the end of this book. I, I loved the, like, going right into kind of the story structure. The first book, right, we, we have things set in parts, and each part is a ringdom. We go from the basement to the parlor to the baths to New Babel. Here, we don't really get that because they're not just going up the tower in the normal way anymore. And when we finally get to, you know, the Sphinx's lair, um, so part four, part three, the bottomless library. But after the first six chapters, we get like sub parts. Master, uh, Mr. Edith Winters and Master Adamos Boreas, and then Miss Voletta Boreas and Iron, and then Senlin and the Librarian. And I got really excited when I saw that. I loved the, the more like focused look. Um, it, it opened up tons of interesting new storylines. Uh, I particularly enjoyed uh, Adam and Edith's adventure up the tower. The way that ended, oh man, I cannot wait to read on. So I had no idea the parts were coming because in the audiobook they're just labeled one through chapter 48, I think <laughs> it was. So I didn't know until we started into like Thomas being in the library and we go straight into what each character's doing during that time. Yeah. I didn't know we were going to keep. Yeah, I didn't know that was coming, and I didn't know we were going to go through everybody. But I loved it. Yeah. And he seems to really hit his stride in the latter half of books. For me. For you, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, but but you're definitely right. He, he feels like, as a, as a reader his writing feels more comfortable by the end of this book. Like he has figured out what his thing is going to be. And he's like, all right, now I've got it. Now I'm in the groove. Here we go. And I think there's also maybe a little bit of stalling being like, I need to set things up before I get there. I know it's going to be great when we meet the Sphinx, but I need to do other <laughs> things before that. And so there's a little bit of, it feels like, some stalling chapters where like, I'm going to character build, but we're not there yet. Not yet. And then as soon as we get to the Sphinx, it's like, yes. <laughs> All the things I've been planning and thinking about how this tower yeah. is structured and built and who's behind it. Yeah. I can, I can start to reveal. Sure. Um, now I, I do want to say one thing, I issue a correction from the first Arm of the Sphinx episode. Uh, apparently, this book was also self-published. Okay. This the next book is the first one that uh, Orbit published. Hod King. Is the Hod King. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he wrote both of these before getting picked up, and now I like after finishing this, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you can't get away with writing a book of this quality and not draw the eye of of you know somebody in. The publishing industry. Yeah, I'd be like, curious <laughs> to hear about his journey with this, because honestly, I don't, I don't understand why he didn't get picked up earlier. Yeah. I mean, it's 
it's a, a reality of the publishing industry that even if you have a quality book, you also need luck. Yes. And so, you know, and, and it may be that he had opportunities and turned them down and, and said, you know, I want to do this myself because I do know some authors do that. Um, you know, Daniel Green, for instance, he, he for sure could have gotten a publishing deal because he had such a, a large built-in audience that, um, like, I mean, any we, publisher would look at him and, and just see money signs, you know? We have other friends but, who have had a large audience and then yeah. and, and definitely got the deal Yeah, because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but Daniel wanted to retain more creative control. And that's that is, fair. you know, that's something that you have to sacrifice when you go into uh, the traditioning traditional publishing pipeline yeah so well i mean i just read another book i told you about earlier today where uh Mm -hmm. they needed more of a the author needed to give more control to the editor or the editor Mm -hmm. needed to take more control because it went off the rails yeah yeah i mean so with with senlin um with bancroft like a lot of the things i was saying in the in the first Arm of the Sphinx episode about how he really leaned into the omniscient narrator. Uh, and I wondered if that was at the direction of an editor. Oh yeah. Um, knowing now it was not, that was, that was his own choice for sure. Um, but that just reinforces my feeling that he figured out how he wants to write, like how he wants to tell the story. And he's like, all right, I got it now. We're locked in. Here we go. And so now I'm going to be looking out for any stylistic changes that occur in the next book where he is writing with editorial feedback, you know, professional editorial supervision, so to speak. So I told you I read in his AMA that he said he was a lapsed professor. Yeah. Gotta be English, right? Uh, no, I think he's, I believe he's American. I'm pretty sure he's like No, no, from... no, no, no. Gotta be an English professor. Oh, oh, right? I don't know. I have no idea. Um. <laughs> True. Yeah, the, uh, meet the author doesn't say anything about his, uh, his teaching career. But, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I... I think he he leaned into more of his like evocative writing style. He yeah. had some beautiful passages and he so he has a, a great sense for describing visuals through abstract ideas. Um like he'll instead of just describing, you know, the shining silver of something or or whatever, he brings in an emotion or a, you know, like philosophy to it. And that's, that's great writing. That's not easy to do. Um, I know for myself, my descriptions, I think are probably the weakest part of my writing. Um, I tend to be very sparing with descriptions, very bare bones. And to an extent that's deliberate, but it's not always like the book I'm writing right now. Uh, I'm trying to lean more into a, a brighter, more vivid descriptive language. And 
as I'm writing, I find myself I'm like, oh no, I need to, I need to do more here. I need to do more. And then I, I'm like, okay, but if I'm doing more, how do I do it and make it interesting? How do I give it value beyond just like adding more words to the page? You know, right, right. and so Bancroft is really good at that. He's he's got a great touch for painting a picture. Um, you know, it, it it comes out really strongly in the scene with um, Sinlin describing the painting of the bricklayer and the zoetrope to the Sphinx. Oh yeah. So he Senlin himself is painting the image in words. You know but he finds interesting ways to do it, right? But it's also a key character moment for both of them mm-hmm. where, like, she is assessing him by what he says. Yeah. And he's maybe trying to say the right things for her. She, like, I, I think he realizes. Ooh. I don't know if he was so much... Like, I didn't get the sense he was trying to perform for her. I think he was was really... Um, On some level, he's got to realize. Being, being honest and, and just being himself. I know he's being honest, but also I think he realizes what she's doing. Maybe. I didn't get that sense. If it's there, it's in subtext. Sure. Um, but that is, that is a great scene, and I'm going to talk more about that scene towards the end of the episode. <laughs> How did you feel about um, the books that we learn about in each chapter? I liked the nursery rhyme book. <laughs> I did too. That was fun. The, like, what was it? Uh, it's the it, naughty it, kids or... Uh, yeah, it was It was something funny. Like, the... the there was, like, a pejorative noun or... or the unlikable alphabet, a primer for children. <laughs> P is for prankster, picador, and peeve, or the young lad who keeps tricks up his sleeve. Like, I loved those. That was fun. Yeah, that was great. At first I was like, where are we going with these books? And then I realized, oh, it's the books he's picking up along the way. Uh, oh, so in in Senlin and the Librarian, yeah, those yeah, are... Yeah, yeah. But the first one was... A Beginner's Guide to the Game of Oops. No, there's another one with the... It's like a... By a noble woman. Oh, that's from... That's the one from uh, Adam and Edith. Oh, uh, okay. Because it changes for each part. The one with, for Adam and Edith is the... Like the, a woman's way or whatever. Ugh. Written by Appel. Um, and then for Iron and Voletta, it's the nursery rhymes. And then for Semlon and the Librarian, it changes. Yeah. With all the yeah. books he picks up. And... I think that was really good for um, like a really smart choice on Bancroft's part because it allowed him to just like really lean into whatever he wanted to write for those epigraphs. Cause you can be like, all right, I just like, well, do you think they are books that, that are somewhere? I, I assumed they were books that he, even though they're in other parts that they're books that he, he was picking up. I'm not sure I understand what you're that saying. That Thomas like, was picking up in the so library still. Are you saying like the nursery rhymes and the women's way and the the books from earlier epigraphs are all in the library that he picked up? The ones from earlier, obviously with the gardens, we have the books that he picked up from 
um, the other ship, right? Uh-huh. But these ones in this part, I assumed, were things that he was looking at as he's going through the library with the cat. Maybe. So some of them for sure, like the ones in his part in Sandlin the Librarian are like called out specifically in the text. Yeah, yeah. Like the art of painting a barn. We know he he picked that one up because that's the one that he ripped the page out to use for his diary. And we know the, you know, the introduction to the game of oops or a beginner's guide to the game of oops. He calls that out and he says, like, I found some book on some Pell game or whatever. Um, so, but he doesn't, at least that I remember, he doesn't mention the nursery rhymes or the, 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 uh, the book of manners for, for the Pell women. Oh, um, the book of manners. The Wifely Way by the Duchess K.A. Pell. So. Or do you think that's something that Maria has? So that is very much on my mind. Um, mm. and, and I think it's quite possible. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so obnoxious. She is not that kind of woman either. She's she's going to. No. Like if they asked that of her, like asked her to behave in that way, she <laughs> would rebel so hard so fast from what we know of her. Yeah. I mean, and even the final scene, which I sort of predicted correctly on the first episode I thought it was going to involve the nobleman from the ship who was watching their battle. But I did say at the end of the book, I was like, we're going to see Maria. Um, but she's uncomfortable. She's not enjoying that life. You think so? Yeah. Oh, her body language. Um, let me, let me pull up this quote. Um, Uh, a man in dark navy entered the picture and joined the woman holding the babe. He put his arm around her waist. She seemed reluctant to look at him. When she did, her expression was full of nervous searching. Like, I just... And, and when she talks, she's apologetic. Like, she's she's like afraid, almost. You know? And she's like, you won't blame her. You promise you won't. She could not stop herself from looking back at the veiled crib. Like, I... I think she is not enjoying herself in this position. Okay, so this is a point I want to make about audiobooks. Okay. The way that the narrator read that part, it was like sweet and cooing and like two, a husband and wife talking to each other over the crib. Hmm. And all of that is inflection and tone. Interesting. So... Obviously, when I read it myself, my brain does that for me. Like, it implies tone and things. Right. It, that's just really interesting because that flies against the description of the action. Like, uh, she when she puts the baby back in the bassinet, it says her movement was guided by the arms that wrapped around her. Like, she, she wasn't voluntarily doing it. He was moving her to put the, the baby back in. And bring her back to bed. And she's like nervous about that. And when the narrator says it in that tone, I see it as like a loving, let's put the baby back together. Because we love the baby. Mm. And so I I, was I read this scene as this guy wants to have sex with her. And she left the bed to go check on the baby. And he's like, 
come on, let's go back to bed, uh, trying to be consoling. And she's saying, you won't blame the baby. You promise you won't. Like, she doesn't want him angry at the baby because she's not complying complying with him. Mm. Yeah. And then, and there's the, the, yes, yes, I promise, he said in the sing-song tone of a settled argument. Come, come, Maria, back to bed. Like... I, I read this scene pretty sinister. I did not see it as a loving portrait of domesticity. See, and that's the choice <laughs> of a narrator. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they have feedback from the author. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that totally colored the scene for me. And yeah. it made me so nervous that she has like put Thomas and, and all of her life behind her. Yeah, I mean, this is just another reason why I don't prefer audiobooks. Like, I, I've i listened to select scenes. You know, like, I'll go on and, and find, like, YouTube clips of, um, you know, some of my favorite books. And, and I'll listen to the audiobook passage of a favorite scene just because I'm curious about how that translates. And nearly every time I'm like, I don't like the way the narrator read that. I don't like the, the emphasis and rhythm the narrator gave to it. Like I, I think about the opening page of bleak seasons. Uh, one of the black company. I thought books. it was good. Um, there's one really powerful line. I think it's maybe my favorite opening page to any book I've ever read. And there's one like the capstone line to it the rhythm he reads is completely different from how i read it and mm. it messed with me when i heard that for the oh, first time you know i think we discussed this and you read yeah. it for me yeah um like well, he, he puts emphasis on the wrong words is is how i felt uh and so so yeah like i would much rather read the scene and be able to interpret the tones of voices and inflections from myself yeah. yeah, rather than, you know. But you also realize, like, because it's only written that any reader can put their own. For sure. Yeah. But but having one reader give it that yeah, meaning yeah. robs all those other thousands of readers from having their own interpretation. Yeah. Truthfully, the only reason I do audio is for convenience. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that was good. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that does belong, you know, kind of in the style discussion because, you know, it, it affects the style of the book. It affects the reading of the book, and depending if, on how yeah. the audiobook narrator interprets things. And if I hate the narrator, you know, then, then I don't want to listen to the book. Like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give you two two things that he does. So he's a, he's got a British accent. Okay. And he does do really good voices for each character. So I know who's talking, even if they don't tell me right away. Mm-hmm. Like I know his voice for Iren and I know his voice for Bolita and I know his voice for Sedlin. Like sure. it's, it's, it's nice, but he also says riffling <laughs> and whiffling. Well, riffling is a word. Yeah, but I've always heard it as rifling through papers. 
Well, so there's riffling and there's rifling. Those yes. are both words. Yes, yeah. but it okay. wasn't. Okay. <laughs> he should have sent a rifling through. Riffling is right. And and it's the same for like um, Wheel of Time. They yeah, say, yeah. or We're... instead of air, they say trebuchet and what's the other? Well, trebuchet is the correct pronunciation. No, but... they sorry, they say trebuchet. And they yeah. say, what's the... Oh, what's the other French word that they really I remember you, you saying that there were several French words that um, Kramer and Redding mispronounce. Yep. Um, which is a very British thing to do. <laughs> uh, where the, the British insist on changing the pronunciation of words that have been adopted from French into English. Uh, yeah, so... I don't know. Do, do you have any other style points or... I think we could probably uh, go straight into... Characters? Yeah, characters. Yeah, I'm ready. Who do you want to talk about? I mean, I guess we did just talk about Mario. Yeah, let's talk about Sentinel. Okay. Um, even though I the, he doesn't even get that much focus in the second half, I feel like what little focus there is is really important, though. Uh, like, I I have such a strong image in my head of the elevator door opening... And him stepping out grizzled and worn down. And and when I compare that mental image of him to the stuffy school teacher on the train approaching the tower at the beginning of the book, it's a dramatic transformation. And I was not super thrilled um, about the idea of it at the end of the first book. But I, I have come around on it by now. I, I like the character he is becoming. Oh, that's right. You were rebelling. I remember. Mm -hmm. um, like he, he really is like a grizzled veteran pirate at this point. He's got scars, you know, his hand was burned. He, his face got clawed by the, um, the, the guard on the cutlass when he was oh, fighting yeah. Yeah. commissioner pound. And, you know, he, he just went through drug withdrawals and and was eating like hardtack biscuits and not getting proper nourishment and he, he comes out gaunt and and he's going gray and like he's just hardened in a in an interesting compelling way i was thrilled that he finally had to take some personal responsibility for the things that he's lying to himself about mm -hmm. and that the phoenix or the Sphinx. Jeez, that's the second time mm -hmm. I've done that. Mm -hmm. The Sphinx, like, put put it to him. Was like... Yeah, I was almost surprised at how direct the Sphinx was about the crumb. Where he's like, this is this painting, this is what it is. Like... No duh. Yeah. And, and if you really thought you were losing your mind, like you're saying, then why didn't you say anything to anybody else? Do right. you really think they deserve to be led by somebody who's losing their mind? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought his apology to them was good. Uh, like he needed it was, to do it that. It was very direct. Um, they deserved that. Yeah. yeah. They deserved an apology. That was not okay. Now, I want to talk about his trip through the bottomless library with the librarian. <laughs> yes. Um, how much did that remind you of a book we recently read and covered on the podcast? Oh, yeah. 
No, I wasn't thinking about it at all. No, really? Oh my gosh, I couldn't get it out of my head. I couldn't get it out of my head. Yeah. Because uh, the, the cat, the cat who talk. saved books. No, but it, it it's described. It's an orange, yeah, orange cat. Like, um, yeah. I love the pestle librarian. That's great. Yep. <laughs> yep. So I I just had that stuck in my head the whole time. Um, added, added an extra little bit of flavor to it that oh, I enjoyed. Oh, good, good. Uh, yeah, and the library itself, uh, I, I wish there had been a little more to the library. Sure. Like, if there's one criticism I have to this, it's that his time in the library was so short. Um, like, he was there for 10 days, but it didn't feel like 10 days of reading for him. Well, it's like, yeah. like there were only like a couple of, a couple of things that stood out. Like I wanted there to be more fantastical elements to the library. Like if we could have seen maybe another trap, a different kind of trap or more description of the rooms beyond, Oh, they just started getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Like I just, I wanted a little more from that. Well, of course it feels short. He's detoxing. There are gaps of time that he's not remembering. And maybe he saw more traps, but we're not going to get him because he's detoxing. Well, he definitely didn't because he saw one trap and then was like, I am not leaving the cat again. Well, maybe he walked past him. I don't know. Like He talks about hearing the cries and he's like, I, I learned my lesson. I'm not going to go. That's true. That's like, true. Um, like I, but I don't trust yeah, his. I, I just wanted more. I don't trust his memory right now. So, obviously. I mean, I don't. I don't think his memory is the issue. I'm. I'm not talking about like well, Semlin as a character. I'm talking about the author's choice to not include more about the library. Fine, fine. I'm just defending it. I know you are. Uh, but, but yeah, like that's that being probably my most major criticism of this book means I really liked this book because that's a minor criticism, you know, in the grand scheme of things. You just want to see it because it's a library. Um, not just that it's, I, the setting is still like the most fascinating thing about these books. And so I want depth to the setting. I want more, you know, that's, that's the most exciting part of the story. Okay. And there, there are some instances like the top of the tower where he doesn't go into much detail. He purposely withholds, you know, information about it, but that's fine because that builds mystery. The library, I, I doubt we're going to go back into the bottomless library, you know, like he didn't, he didn't write it in a way that's like, oh, there's more to it. And maybe we'll get there later. It's, it's just like, it's very direct and to the point. Uh, but speaking, speaking of Adam, you want to talk about Adam? Yeah. Uh, he, he did finally make that choice. Um, to come to that realization that he needs to separate from Valletta. He needs to let her do her thing. Um, and, and find his own way. Still kind of frustrated at how, um, shallow his choice was where he's just like, I'm going to go find gold. I'm going to go find treasure. But the potential that we're left with at the end, where he is involved in something, he doesn't know what it is. 
Um, and this actually made me for the first time question my evaluation of his name. Uh, the fact that the guards up there didn't recognize Edith and said, maybe you're, you come in later. That made me think about timelines and Adam is early. Maybe Adam does hold some symbolic value along with the biblical Adam as an originator. Okay, so this was totally colored for me by another book I just read, The Starless Sea, uh-huh. where the story is already written and characters pop in and out of the story. Mm-hmm. So I'm totally thinking that there's some prophecy or story that's been handed down that he is a part of that we just have no idea. That's what I want it to be. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I I really don't know, and I love that. The like, cynical part of me is like, no, the commissioner spread his name, and no. he's just being arrested. I think the people on top of the tower are pretty separated from any of the petty politics of the ringdoms below. I really hope so. Like, what do you think? Do you think they've been there the whole time? Like they are, they have a purpose from the builder. Yeah. Uh, from the bricklayer. I do. Brick I think layer. they are, okay. I mean, the top of the tower, like that's the, the open end of the bridge to the stars. Yeah. And they have, um, almost certainly they have like a, a dome over a city. Cause we, we got that from the journal where the guy's like, it, it was like a giant, uh, like fishbowl over the city. Um, and that tells me, you know, like we're getting up to the point where the air is thin and they need, that. they need. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're, if it were some sort of like proto spaceport that they just don't have the technology yet to use. Um, but the bricklayer had the foresight to set it up. Hmm. Okay. So I'm excited about yeah, that. Yeah, I'm really excited. I can't wait to get more about Adam. Um, the other thing that I, I I don't think I mentioned this, but his last name, Boreas. I mean, obviously tree. Yep. Um it, it's it's hard for me to separate that from the Bible. Yeah, like it Adam and the tree. Mm-hmm. Early on, I was like, okay, it, it seems like Bancroft is using biblical imagery, but not trying to uh, have it give it symbolic value within the story. And now I'm beginning to question that. Where's the snake? Where's Eve? Where's the snake? Yeah. Like, v- Valletta, her name is is really interesting because that doesn't maybe Eve is too on the nose for Bancroft's taste. So Edith? No, I didn't think of Edith, but, but Voletta does have that V in it. And maybe there's, I think you're stretching there. Yeah. I, I very well, maybe, but, um, but it's something that I have to think about now because I think this scene with the sparking men recognizing Adam changes a lot for the story. Yeah. Yeah, it does. 
speaking of Edith, she is the arm of the Sphinx now. She agreed to it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, she has a new arm that she dislikes. So she said the fingers were bigger and harder to... She was trying to button her blouse. Yeah, she couldn't do her own buttons. Um, I I imagine that's also part, partially because she's still getting used to the arm. Well, what exactly but... did the Sphinx say that this arm would be better for? Like hard use in combat. The other one she said was all force and no... No, she described it as, like, genteel, and, like, it could deal with, like, uh, an occasional head knocking, but it wasn't built for the hard use that she put it to. And this one is made for, like, being an enforcer. Hmm, okay. Because the Sphinx wants to go to war, and she is his general, essentially. His, huh? His, her. Yeah, I mean it's it it is funny because uh, other than those brief Voletta scenes, everybody else still thinks the Sphinx is a man, and so we still get he as a well. Voletta also does it when she's around them. She still says he. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so even though it's an omniscient narrator, the narrator sticks to the knowledge of whomever's head we're in at the time. Which is good, because I think it would start to get confusing. Do they know? Do they not know? Did yeah. she tell them off page? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Edith. There's definitely some serious story potential there going forward. Uh, I, I like her being the captain right now. I like her being the captain. You know um, what I do not like? Hmm. Her and Sandlin kissing. Did not like. Did not like. I don't want them to get together. Uh-huh. I I do not want this series to end with Senlin and Maria, like... Going their separate ways. Yeah, like, he finally finds uh-huh. her and then realizes, oh, we've changed too much. All right, I'm going to go off with Edith. Cool, you be happy. Yeah. I'll I, be happy, too. I don't want that to happen. So. Well, you and I have a very, like much more strict view of marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking of like what what would like if I were a different kind of reader, what would my criticisms be? Like what if she thinks he's dead or she believed all the lies that they're both told all the way up. Like, forget about it. You're never going to be able to find them again. They're probably dead or they probably forgotten about you. Yeah. Like what if, what if they wanted a divorce at this point and they can't even contact each other? I still like, I still wouldn't like that criticism where it's just like, no, no. Like, you, you don't get to leave it like that. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. That's that's not good enough. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, so yeah, with, with Edith, like, it makes a lot of sense from her perspective that she is happy. Like, we see in the butterfly recording, she seems confused and then allows herself to smile. She's happy about the kiss. Um, and, and 
that works for her, that fits in. She has left her old life behind. She has left her husband. She never cared for him. You know, she didn't want to get married yeah. in the first place. Um, and and so this is her like finding what could be love for the first time. Right. But with Thomas, I'm like, oh, no. No, Thomas. I'm so glad they didn't do anything more. I'm glad been, that he immediately like turned away and left. I would have been really upset. Yeah, I would have been. Uh, that would have been my biggest criticism of the book had that happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I would have been mad. I mean, they're so. both recovering at this point. But they have more of a <laughs> lapse of judgment excuse than they would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Like he's completely exhausted. She's recovering from having a new major arm, surgery. Major surgery. Yeah. <laughs> and she was heavily drugged as well. She was, yeah. Yeah. So. And he's he detoxed. <laughs> and he, yeah. So. Yeah, neither of them have had a, an easy go of things recently. But let's let's talk about Voletta. Yes. I was yes. very pleasantly surprised. Were you? By her friendship with the Sphinx. Oh, how mature she was? No, no just the relationship. The the fact that it exists and how it came about. and Well, we have the narrator commenting on it, too, being like, yeah. it's more of a mystery why the Sphinx... Is wanted the friendship yes. rather than her. Yeah, there's but but like I think you can read between the lines with that and see why the Sphinx was attracted to that relationship. Yeah. Um and even even some hints directly, you know, where Byron talks about you can't just take in every stray. And she and she responds, she says, We're all strays here. Yes. So she sees herself as one. Yeah. Um I think she sees a bit of herself, a bit of her younger self in Voletta. But okay. I think she also sees Voletta as being free in a way and that, she, that she cannot be. She, yeah, you're right. And she so, cannot be. so having that um, like vitality to Voletta is something that brings joy to the Sphinx's life. And also finally maybe having a relationship on that level where she can trust Mm-hmm. She had Byron. Yeah. He could have changed her battery. And she said no. Yeah. Yep. That was a good scene. And she was also stressed at that point. Mm-hmm. You can see it in her body language. You can see it in her eye. You can see, like, this was not easy for her. Yeah. Um, and then from an authorial perspective, the idea of having... Uh, an antagonist in the Sphinx. And I, I still think the Sphinx is an antagonist at the end of the book. For now. But having the antagonist have a genuine friendship with one of the heroes is like, that's great work to add complexity to the story. And it obviously a very different sort of friendship and relationship, but it reminds me a little bit of what Matthew Stover does in the Acts of Cain. How, um, Oh yeah. There's there's a a yeah. relationship that develops between the principal antagonist and the hero. Yeah. As it were. Um like I don't see that very often where there's a genuine respect 
and friendship between the main character and their, you know, and, and a main antagonist. I want to go back to that scene, though, where she says, and you want to be trusted. Mm-hmm. She's like, I want you to do this and you want to be trusted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that moment, like when she's creeping through the vents and she overhears Edith and Adam and she's so hurt by Adam saying that she's immature. Yeah. And then as she's crawling away, she hears him say, well, you know, maybe like she is reliable. Yes. You know, and that that was a, a really great moment. And then, yeah, reinforced. She doesn't want the responsibility. She's freaking out by the idea of having that responsibility. And failing. Because she says yeah. that at one point to this thing. She yeah. says, I'm going to let you down. Yep. I'm going to fail you. And... And yeah, and so having that that moment of like that crucible almost of what are you going to do now that you have this pressure on you, whether you wanted it or not. And she she panics, she fumbles, she breaks the first vial, she drops it, and but she ultimately does get the job done. I, I think this is gonna continue being a a struggle for her. I don't think she's solved her confidence problems. I don't think she's solved her. No, it's not um, that easy. You know, her, her desire to prove her reliability, but, uh, but I think that was a really good first step for her. And we also have some really important moments where she stands up to the Sphinx for mm-hmm. Thomas and for mm-hmm. our other characters. Yeah. Like, I think back to our conversation at the end of Sinlin Ascends, and I talked about Voletta being just like a blank slate at that time. I love the way Bancroft has painted in that blank slate. I mean, you knew I was automatically going to love her. Yeah, you were. (laughs) Yeah, you were. (laughs) So. Uh, And the last character, last of the main characters to talk about is Iron. She didn't die in this book. Uh, I still think the death flags are popping up all over. No, no. Like, no, no, she's not done yet. She's not done yet. She's got some character moments. We saw a big one, big change, like, here. She, Yeah, she did. But that's why that's, like, another ah. death flag. Because she, she is very near to completion as a, as a person, as a character. True, no, um, I don't want it. <laughs> like, I, I think this is gonna end up being a similar thing uh with the uh the dresden files there was a character uh in book 15 i think uh when we recorded that episode i was like i expect her to die in the next book Mm. uh i was like there there are red flags popping up all over the place i expect her to die in the next book and if she doesn't die in the next book I'm going to expect her to die in the one after that. And I'm going to continue expecting her to die until she dies because there are flags waving right now. And that's how I feel about Iron. I I'm shifting my prediction from this book to the next one. I think she's going to die in the Hod King. Um, she had some real struggles here too. She did. There were some sad moments with her. Yes. Like the, the fact that she didn't even know that menopause was a thing. Hmm. And she asks Voletta, who's... 18. Yeah, 
40 years younger than her and Voletta knows. And that's such a melancholy thing. Like you, you think about what sort of life Iron had to have led that she just, she never had somebody to tell her these things, you know, where's her mother. Yeah. This is the conversation that like, a, you see your mother experience and B, you have that conversation with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, that was maybe the most emotional scene in the book for me. That was rough. Yeah. And and she she I don't think ever really quite saw herself as a mother and a and a housewife. But that doesn't mean that she didn't no. want well, it. Yeah, like when when she asks Voletta, you know, have you heard of the cessation? She's like, Yeah. And and then she tells Voletta, I'm going to be alone. This means oh. I'm going to be alone. Like, <laughs> no. Oh, heartbreaking. That's so sad. It was very sad. It was very sad. And she was like, her her pleas to the Sphinx, like, just fix it. Fix I'm me. broken. Fix just me. fix. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Just do something. Mm-hmm. She's like, put a new spine in me, you know. Do something like that's so sad yeah it was it was just that that like desperate plea so i think yeah i I think she's gonna die i think it's gonna be that bitter note to balance out a sweet note with other characters but also why didn't the sphinx take this opportunity to use her as a soldier like she's ideal she's perfect i mean obviously she's getting older and her body's breaking down but that's clearly not a problem for the sphinx i think that um how how would i put this through the scenes with voletta the sphinx was humanized and that allows us to read this scene with Iron and the Sphinx and say she's not totally heartless. No, she's not. She knows that like like there's a difference between taking advantage of Iron in this moment of vulnerability and what she normally does with the Wakeman. So I think she's pushing Edith to grow. And she maybe doesn't see yes. that with with Eren. Yeah. I hope we get more points of view from the Sphinx. The Sphinx is a fascinating character. So cool. My like, favorite part. It's rare that you have a, a character built up and shrouded in such mystery and then have it live up to the anticipation. Yes. And Bancroft nailed it with the Sphinx. Mm. She is, yep. And there's still so much mystery with her. Although, mm-hmm. I have guesses. Mm-hmm. I have guesses. Do you want to talk about her? As a character? By, like, I mean, sure. We've already talked a lot about her. And her yeah, motivations but through like, and... other people's eyes. And... Oh, but oh, we, We've talked a lot about her, but if you have predictions, yeah. Like... Okay, so, so first I want to go over the other Wakeman that we've met. Okay. <laughs> So we've got one who's leading a revolution. 
And she cites that as the reason why she's got all kinds of paranoia is because her Wakemen could do something to her. She's given them the tools. Okay, why did she help Luke Mara if he is this type of person? And B, like, why is she continuing to help a character we thought was dead? Well, we're given an explanation for the Red Hand. That she's going to war and he is a tool of war. Fine. But uh, why... Luke Marat, uh, I think he changed a great deal. There's a lot more to him that we don't know yet and we are going to find out in the next book. Fine. But... Um, like, she, she makes a comment about... Uh, when when she removes the restriction in Edith's contract that she can kill other Wakemen, she's like, there's one in particular that you're probably going to need to kill. She's definitely talking about Luke Marat. Okay, so do you think his legs are going to all of a sudden Wouldn't work surprise again? me. Uh, it would not at all surprise me if he has been saving batteries. Right. And he'll use them when when necessary. Uh, I we got a little more perspective on him through the Sphinx, where she's like, he doesn't really care about the Hods. He doesn't really like. He's a zealot, but he's not a zealot in the way that he presents himself. And I think, and he maybe knows more of the picture of what the tower was supposed to be, and he doesn't care. Yeah. He wants to destroy. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's collecting Ogier paintings. What, he had three or four of them? Yeah. Uh, like, he's... I I definitely expect we're going to see a showdown between him and Edith when he's got full-on power armor legs. Well, obviously I'm on the Sphinx's side in this conflict with him. Yeah, like, the idea of um, destroying the ability to read, deconditioning... Mm. You have already gotten on, on my like, bad side. Yeah, hard pass <laughs> on that. It's um, the same with the the cat who saved books. Yeah. The I appreciated that we got that scene where the Sphinx like had an honest discussion with Thomas Semlin about Luke Marat because she she doesn't trust what Valletta says about Semlin. I think she's letting it sit in the back of her mind, but she's not completely taking her at her word. She says, I think in, to her, it's like, you might think that, so but paranoid. you are young. Yeah, she's so paranoid. Um, yeah. And she is very set in a specific pattern of thought. But having Senlin get the chance to, you know, she's like, have you been charmed? Were you charmed by him? And he's like, I, I approved of some of his ideas, uh, but the way he's going about it is wrong. And he, and he like, as he goes on, he gets more and more impassioned. Yeah. And that's like, and she that's one of those him. things where it's like, you can't fake that sort of emotion. You can't right. fake that kind of passion. Right. And, and so we, we get a, at least the basis for trust between the Sphinx and, and someone. There's hope there. Yeah. Um, I, honestly, I saw the hand as like a, violence crazed maniac mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i would not set that totally loose what it is. to turn around and bite me uh yeah totally wouldn't surprise me if if that happens 
but also can how how did she get her hands on him? We don't have any physical injury from him that she replaced a limb or whatever. He just injects. Oh, how did he get recruited in the first place? Yes. Is what you mean. Oh, yeah. Can um, anybody just inject it? Good question. Probably. But you have to be the right temperament. I don't know. Like, you gotta right? be the sort Isn't of... crazy? Yeah, the sort of person who would do that. Uh, like, uh, Nah, I don't trust. Yeah, we're, we're definitely... He's... He's currently paralyzed. He's not going to stay paralyzed. No, she she obviously had great hope that he's making, you know, big progress. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think I have anything more in terms of characters to talk about. Oh, actually, one last quick thing. Okay. I like Byron. <laughs> Byron's entertaining. He's, he's fun. What about Ferdinand? Ferdinand is... An animal. Byron is a person. He has music. Ferdin- In his chest, he makes fun noises. Ferdinand is is a dog. Ferdinand <laughs> is a mechanical dog. Byron is like at least a sapient being. You know? So why didn't she trust him? Why didn't who trust him? Why didn't the Sphinx trust him? Trust him to like change her battery. Oh, I think she does. That was purely theater for Voletta. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. She seems to order him around a lot. I wonder if he ever resents her. Well, we're going to get a lot more Byron in the next book because he's going with him. That's crazy. I'm so excited. I can't believe they're doing that. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And and that was really sweet that like he and Edith had a moment. Of, yeah. Like, I'm so sorry. Yeah, she apologizes for... For getting him drunk, poisoning him. Yeah. And yeah. him being like, I thought we were becoming friends. And she's like, what? Yeah. We screamed at each other. Like, what do you... All we did was bicker and call each other names. And he's like, like yeah, friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he's endearing. That's the word for him. Yeah. He's endearing. Yeah. Okay, so who's going to change your battery? Whose battery? The Sphinx's battery. Ferdinand? Like, who, who who, can change it? I guess she could create well, mm, anything to do it for her. Yeah, probably one of her machines. I guess. Fine. I guess I... And we also... Her batteries last a long time. She may be expecting Byron will be back before she needs to change another battery. Okay, so, so predictions, though. I think that she is the daughter... In the portraits. Oh, 100%. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought you'd be on the same page. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Be like, obviously she's the daughter. She's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if he's not, I don't know where he's going to go. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm just going to say, get ready for the return of Taru. Yep. If he doesn't show up in the next book, I will... <laughs> I don't know. I will lose lose all faith in Josiah Bancroft as a writer. No, that's too much. That's too much, Drew. (laughs) You're being dramatic. He's going to show up, though. Like, the next book is all about the Hods. He's going to show up. I still think that uh, Senlin is going to become a Hod. 
Uh, I think I think well, we're going to see. I think we're going to see Edith as um, the more like direct opposition to Luke Marat, and Thomas as a spy is going to become a hod to infiltrate and work against him from within. That's going to be hard for him. It is going to be hard for him. But this whole thing has been hard for him. He is being molded through high pressure, uncomfortable brutal situations i think it's going to be a lot harder now for maria to leave because her main priority is going to be this baby yeah yeah and how are you going to leave not only leave security for the baby as in wealth and um i don't know all the things that you need you've got a weird look on your face who is the father? Okay, we were told that he, she was pregnant before they got married. Okay. And I think that's why she's saying in that final scene, like, don't resent her. Please, please tell me you won't blame her. So, the because there were no descriptions of her at the very beginning of Senlin Ascends as a pregnant woman, my initial assumption was that somewhere in between she lost the baby. But after having this scene again, I was like, maybe she was just like things, they, they got married so fast that she couldn't even convince this Pell that like it was his. I don't know. No, I don't, I don't think she's going to be able to convince him. I think that's why she had to say, don't blame the baby. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I read, I read her saying, don't blame the baby for like a more immediate reason. No, it's totally because it's not his. Mm. And she doesn't want. I mean, that does make sense. Him to resent. Yeah. The baby girl. Because if, if the baby is for sure Senlin's, that makes it easier for her and Semlin to reunite. Yes. But if she has a baby by somebody else, that is a huge hurdle for them in at, at the point of reunion. I mean, they already have enough hurdles where it's like, yeah. okay, so let's say she, they successfully leave. They have powerful enemies coming after them. And she's protecting a baby girl and she's bringing a baby girl into situations where she's going to be endangered. Mm -hmm. That's real hard to convince a mother yeah, to yep. do. Yep. And on top of that, here's, here's my huge question. I don't understand why he never thinks of the baby Thomas either like never even has a thought. Well, so what, what my, where my mind initially went was maybe she did lose that baby but then unbeknownst to either of them she got pregnant on the train ride up hmm okay possible yeah possible. and and with that timeline she could for sure convince this duke pell why of the timeline of, she may be afraid that like oh the baby isn't his he'll he'll kill the baby he's he's that brutal that ruthless like so i guess 
how much it was months though that she was in the tower before she got there right or was it not weeks no n- for her much less time she um, was faster i know he got so she was gone from the baths before he met the fake ogier okay and that yeah that could only have been like a month maybe because the majority of the time that passes is after he goes to New Battle. So she could convince the Pell that it was oh, his. the baby was just born early. Yeah. Yeah. Because hmm. at okay. a month, you're not showing. No. Yeah. But hmm. it's still, I don't know. <laughs> it's still weird and we have to jump through hoops for Thomas. Yeah. To not be thinking. Yeah. Like, there's no regret scene in the past where he's like, oh, and we had this really hard moment after we got married. Mm-hmm. I do think there's still gaps that we're going to see in flashback between them on the train approaching the tower. Like, we haven't seen their wedding. True, or, true. like, the most recent thing we saw was the piano scene when presumably she got pregnant. Okay. Well, the kite was after. Because he proposed. Oh, that's right. The kite was after. The kite was after. Yeah. Yeah. And then she goes and talks to her second cousin or whatever and is like, he gave me a gift. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that is the most recent scene we've seen with them. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Well, let's let's kind of continue on just with miscellaneous things. Um, I had... I had... Two notes. Uh, one of them, this is incredibly petty. Um, when the Sphinx reveals herself to Voletta, uh, and we have a line, the floating tr- silver tray stained the hollow inside of the black robe and the floor with a sanguine light. This explained the Sphinx's gliding gait and his inconsistent height. Her. Her inconsistent height. Anyway, gliding gait... Gate is spelled G-A-T-E here. Uh, that is the wrong gate. Oopsie. Yeah. Um, like I said, very petty, but it is something that I, I like stumbled over. I was like, wait, is, yes. Okay. Yes. That it's supposed to be the other gate. Well, we've yeah. been, I've been showing you all this, our bone apple tea. Oh yeah. Jeez. <laughs> uh, but the other thing I, I want to get your thoughts on this. This is a direct quote. Books are seldom more than an author elaborating upon their obsession with the grammar of self-doubt. How superior are books to authors? Nothing believes in itself so much as a book. Nothing is less bothered by history or propriety. Begin in my middle, the book says. Rifle straight to my end. What difference does it make? The book comes out of white, empty fly leaves and goes into the same oblivion. And the book is never afraid. I definitely glossed over this. So, as an author, I think this is fascinating. And I think this is a a look into the mind of Josiah Bancroft. That he says, books are seldom more than an author elaborating upon their own, or their obsession with the grammar of Mm. self-doubt. And this is especially... um, That seems shallow. 
I don't think it's necessarily shallow. I think it's a painting with a very wide brush. Okay. Um, but it, it was especially funny to me reading that the day after I, you know, was a guest on the Legendarium episode for The Man Who Was Thursday uh, with James Kennedy as a guest. And he talked so much about how that book is uh, an artifact of G.K. Chesterton's self-doubt. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because when, like, there are for sure books that are this. Yeah. Um, but when I think about the novels that I have written, that is not the case. The short stories I have written, very much so. Huh. Very much so. I mean, when I think of the best books that I've read, I don't, I don't find that remotely true. Like, when, when you've got a, an author who's that good, it seems like they're writing with confidence all the way through. So there's, you can write with confidence, but you can write about self-doubt. You can express your self-doubt through the word. And that is like, uh, storytelling can serve so many different purposes. And one of those purposes, I truly agree here. I'm, I, I don't agree with the seldom part of this, but I do agree that books can storytelling creation, sub creation can be an avenue to um, self-realization. It can be a way for an author to learn about himself. Okay, I might I might bring in something else. So there's this course I've been taking, an economics course. Okay. And the guy who's leading it, um I believe he has a PhD in economics, but he definitely runs like a financial investment group okay. with like $2 billion under investment. It's a lot of money. It's a lot. Um, <laughs> he also is associated with another like education institute. And one of the things that he likes to say mm -hmm. is he doesn't take... Um, he doesn't take religion out of the teaching, out of what he's teaching. Like he sees, he likes to say that. I'm confused where religion is involved in economics. I'll tell you. Okay. So one thing he adds into the equation of why people do the things they do and what they should do to be healthy financially and mentally is like as humans who are created in the image of God, we are therefore also created to create, to want to create, to be pushed to create. Okay. And I think like, that's another thing that you can say writers are doing. Yeah. I, is like they are driven to express, to create. Yeah. Uh, Tolkien would 
certainly agree with that. Right, right. And maybe Chesterton. I don't know. I just found it interesting in like, he says, when you take those things out of the equation, then it stops making sense why people are doing the things that they're doing. Because oftentimes they aren't uh, driven by thinking it through or being financially savvy. They just, people just do. Right. Yeah. So when, when I'm thinking about writing stories and, and why I want to write a story, why I'm driven to that, that kind of creation, I think the reasons change from story to story. Sometimes it is a matter of, I saw some cool thing that just sparked in my head and my imagination went wild and I ended up somewhere where I'm like, I got to put this down. I got to tell this story. But there are other stories that come out of the need to express myself or the need to figure out something about myself and to write out my emotions on the page, write out my mentality on the page and, uh, and, and see where that leads. And if I'm being totally honest, that is how the first story I ever got published came about. It was, it was a, a moment of severe self doubt, um, over a decade ago now, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, but I, like, I had this kind of like crisis and I went home and in the span of maybe an hour, hour and a half, I wrote a short story. And you can see the whole story. I'm, I'm not. Uh, but I, like, I, when I wrote it, I wasn't thinking about like, oh, I want to write this awesome story. It was like, I want to write my thoughts out and and take those thoughts and turn them into a story. And I did so. And then, you know, I ended up using that short story for a creative writing workshop. Um, it was, uh, like the first day of that workshop, our professor asked if anybody had a story ready to go for that we could discuss in the second class. And I was the only person who said yes. And so we, we did that story and my professor, um, amazing woman, uh, Leslie Becker was her name. She rest in peace. She passed away last year. Uh, she like, she saw potential in that story. Like I, I remember, you know, we sat down for our like critique workshop and, and she let it off and she kind of slapped her hand on the desk and she was like, well, it's all downhill from here. Oh. And, uh, and, and she spoke with me in private after the class and was like, uh, I want you to really like take into account the feedback I gave you on this. I want you to revise this. You need to submit this to places. You need to get this in a journal somewhere. And, and I did, and I did. <laughs> uh, but she was kind of that the first um, writing mentor I ever had. And I, I learned a great deal from her class. And uh, she was a big proponent of that idea of 
expressing your self-doubt through story and finding, you know, truth through it. So. I I kind of assumed it was like the same reason everybody who's an avid reader thinks about writing, which is this story made me feel so much. Mm -hmm. I loved this so dearly. I want to do this for somebody. Well, that was how it started for me. Uh, It was reading a lot of things, but specifically The Wheel of Time that I... I would put down a book, I'd put down a Wheel of Time book, The Dragon Reborn or Lord of Chaos or whatever, and I would sit there and consider the sense of wonder and excitement filling me and eventually reach the point where I was I was like, I, I want to be able to give other people this same feeling. I want to translate that awe and wonder and adventure through my own stories. And with a thriller, it's like, wow, this really like had me going and I felt so alive. Yeah. I mean, like, so that's sort of the foundation of it for me. And, and I've added nuance and, and new perspectives and avenues and meanings to writing. Well, it seems um, like you have that thought as a child reader. Yeah. Yeah. I was 11 years old when I first had that thought. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, which is wild. I began writing my first book 21 years ago. <laughs> uh, and, and now I write a book and I'm like, man, I really hope I make people cry with this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't always want a good cry, Drew. <laughs> uh but we both we both did just tear up with talking about Edith, not Edith. Sorry, Erin. Yeah, I mean, I didn't tear up, but that you was you were glossy eyed. Glossy eyed. <laughs> no, it, it was the most emotional moment in the book for sure, though. Um, but but yeah, so I think that's the last of the miscellaneous points that I have. Uh, but we still have favorite scenes to talk about, which we really should get through because we're already like an hour and 15 minutes into this episode. It's because we started talking about writing. Yeah. Um, Sorry, guys. Turns out when I have a podcast about writing, I get carried away. But uh, but let's start with you. What was your third favorite scene? Sorry, Drew. It's the same as yours. I I snuck a peek. Oh, so what is it? It's um, Adam and Edith's scene on the top of the tower. Oh, no, that is not my third favorite scene. Oh, okay never mind um (laughs) i love the potential of this scene i am excited for adam to have something a storyline that i'm interested in and be more than like than he has been yeah and to separate himself not like be independent for the first time from the group from his sister from his parents from his responsibilities yeah. And uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, my third favorite scene, uh, I actually talked myself into this over the course of the episode, but it's, it is the scene with Iron and Voletta. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, 
but but I'll toss in an honorable mention. The one that I originally had as my third favorite was when they uh, hijack the the like cottage hot air balloon and steal the guy's books. <laughs> that that scene just was delightful. And they all come back disappointed. Yeah, they're, like they're yeah everybody's grumpy after that because they know that they're the villains. Yeah, but I, I loved how they're like. He knocks on the door and they hear people like scrambling around and, and it's like, are they getting ready inside? Are they, are we going to open the door and be greeted with guns in our faces? And it was like, no, they were like making tea and preparing to receive visitors. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Good, good stuff. Um, so your second favorite. Madame Bata. Ooh, good scene. With the web. Yeah. Good scene. I really like her. And I like that scene. Mm-hmm. She's she's like the first wisdom that we've had. And the I, first, like, not self-interested wisdom. Or, I mean, she even is self-interested, but she's not, like, mercenary about it. I meant, like, like, true. Okay. Not like, I'm going to sell you the secrets of the tower. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that is a good scene. It's a, it's a great set piece. Is it? Is there a scene that isn't in a great set piece in this story? Like, Beacroft had such a brilliant imagination creating the whole tower. Like, I feel like everywhere we go, I'm like, this is just cooler and cooler. See, I guess I was thinking of, like, how she puts him in his place. She's like, let me tell you what the truth actually sounds like. Mm -hmm. My name is Madame Bada. You hear how that sounds? You hear how it vibrates underneath you? Yeah. That's what the truth sounds like. Let's try it together. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, smack him down. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, my second favorite scene was the Sphinx meeting with Senlin after he, you know, gets through the library and, and, what talks him? about the brick layer and the origins of the tower and and then shows the but thing? specifically the two times that Thomas has to describe the artwork uh just beautiful passages amazing writing well done Josiah Bancroft well done yeah that's pretty yeah that's pretty good so uh your favorite i knew it would have to be something with the sphinx and the first thing that kept popping up in my mind was with Volita. Like, I love their relationship. Yeah. I love the secret visits at night. And, uh-huh. like, her crawling, like, using up all the <laughs> coconut the oil. Coconut oil. <laughs> yeah. And Byron's like, what the hell are you yeah, doing with this stuff? <laughs> Poor <laughs> you, Byron. <laughs> you just asked for more? Like, what do you, why do you need this? It's great. <laughs> yeah that but, that that's another one that i considered for my top three but i guess i guess more specifically was like her changing the batteries yeah but i'm questioning that after what you just said that's true with like the giant tesla coil and i just don't i just don't like thomas as much as Belita. so yeah. i would prefer a scene with the sphinx and Belita. sure yeah uh well my favorite was adam and the sparking men on top of the tower uh, the the pure narrative promise, the sense of mystery, the sense of potential. Um, the descriptions are great. The dialogue is really good. Like the whole thing has the sense of unreality to it. 
the fact that they're like climbing up the sheer side of the tower. Like I got, I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> when they climbed over the, like climbed on the mechanical horse thing to then grab the lip and pull themselves over to the top of the tower. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you were relieved. No, I was freaking out. You like, mean on their way out or on the way at, at the top, the top lip? Well, only one of them goes on their way out and there's no description of it. They park the the mount on the side of the tower. Oh, you meant and that unclip part. themselves <laughs> and climb over it and stand on the front of it to grab the edge of the tower and... You're freaking out. And just because I do have a pretty vivid, you know, mental image of the things that I read... Envisioning that, like, made me physically uncomfortable. You know what I would do off of this tower. Ugh. Yeah, you would want to, like, go skydiving. Um, I'd probably paraglide. Yeah. But... I don't... Because you can't... Oh, my gosh. I don't want to land that close to the tower. You want to land, like... Yeah. Near the mountains that they saw. But, But, yeah, so, like, there was just so much going on in this... In this moment... Uh, great power to the story. Bancroft knocked it out of the park with that scene. So <laughs> that was my favorite in the book. Honestly, this book made me think of the potential of the tower again. Yes. Of the what it was made for. Mm -hmm. And I think of the possibilities. Like, if you could make it a true tourist destination... Can you imagine all the spots that you could bungee jump from or like paraglide from? <laughs> oh, that'd be oh, so man. cool. And and if at the top of it you had that pool. <laughs> It'd be kind of cold. It's heated. Of course it's heated. <laughs> and you you walk into the pool like over the veins of gold. Through mm. the fog. Through the fog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion of the book itself, but we have some beers to talk about for the final draft. Yeah, Drew went a little overboard. Uh, there were too many good beers with names we for, for we this We could have done episode. like half a dozen. Yeah. No problem. Or more. Yeah. And, and I was surprised by that. Yeah. So let's let's start with what you have been drinking over the course of this episode. Okay, so the one that almost exploded... <laughs> There's a reason for that. Yes. So this is a smoothie beer. And a lot of smoothie beers end up with live yeast still in them. And when you have live yeast and freely available sugar that they can eat. Fruit. In the form of fruit. Yeah. Um, your cans can explode. <laughs> yeah, there's there's like a craft beer subculture joke about um, these types of beers, these heavily fruited sours um, being grenades, yeah, being smoothie grenades. What What's happening is as the yeast is eating, it's producing gas. You know, like it 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 can't just eat and do nothing. Mm hmm. So the gas expands the can, and then you have pop. Yeah, and so keeping it cold 
slows down that process. Well, you're more than likely going to use an ale yeast, so its happy fermenting temperature is like 68 to 72 or something. Yeah. But if you keep it cold, then the yeast stays kind of sleepy and dormant, and it it's not going to eat the sugar because it's not a good time to eat the sugar. Yeah. And so this this whole thing kind of started a few years back where um, there's a, a, a now a notorious brewing company called 450 North. Uh, they were kind of one of the pioneers of the style of beer and they were shipping out, you know, cans of Grenades. their beer. And uh, there was, you know, a shipment that went in the back of a truck and it wasn't a refrigerated truck and the cans exploded in the back of the truck. And since then, you know, there have been stories all over. Uh, I had one. It wasn't from 450 North. It was actually from uh, High Hops Brewing Company in Colorado yep. here. Yep. Um, it was a like a Hawaiian mango pineapple sour delicious were, it beer. It was delicious. Yeah. Uh, Hawaiian Dream, it was called. And uh, I was uh, I was <laughs> going to enjoy a, a nice shower beer. Um, it's, a, it's a great time. If you've never had a shower beer, it's one of life's uh, hidden joys. But I was like, you know what, a Hawaiian dream while well, I take a nice, like, relaxing shower sounds great. And I go to open it, thankfully in the shower. <laughs> but the moment I, like, touched that tab to the lid, it it was like a gunshot went off in the shower. Um, like, it, it warped the metal of the top, blew out the top of the can. Like, it was crazy. <laughs> and and I was in the other room, and I heard it, and I was like, what happened? Are you okay? Did you fall? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was wild. Are you cut? <laughs> so, thankfully, this beer was refrigerated properly. And, it was. Uh, yeah, it just foamed a little bit when Lord opened it. Uh, so, so, talk about the beer itself here. All right. So, it is uh, blueberry, mango, pomegranate. And there are two different versions, so I, I chose this guy. I think there was yeah, another... The other one was like raspberry banana lemonade, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I'm sure it's also good, but yeah, I, I picked this guy. They had the same name. Mm-hmm. So this is... And it's 7%, by the way. Yeah, I feel like these these like heavy-fruited sours are always like surprisingly strong. They say that, but I know for a fact oh, that, that- we yeah. They don't always test that high. Um, yeah, there another craft beer culture drama a few years ago, probably 2019, maybe. Yeah. Some guy, a home brewer who had all the proper equipment, got a can of 450 North and uh, like or had like a case of 450 North and he had several. And he was like, I don't believe that these are whatever 7.2% that they say. I'm going to test it with my homebrewing equipment and he tested it came out at like 2.3 percent and and so there was a huge uh like brouhaha over misleading labeling and a lot of breweries since then have stopped putting abv on their labels because guess what you don't have to i don't know if you guys knew that but you don't have to yeah i i sir like i sure thought that you had to i did too yeah um so we tested one nearby weldworks tested Mm -hmm. one and also the case. They were way high on the ABV. <laughs> it had a lot less alcohol in it. Whoops. Yep. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, to be honest, yeah, this is a fruit smoothie with alcohol in it. Yes. And. Like, it is opaque. It is 
thick and creamy and opaque. <laughs> I mean, truthfully, the best ones are like ten bucks a ca- uh, per like sixteen ounce can, and yeah. I don't, I don't really feel the need to pay that. Ooh, I'm just thinking of that uh, that TF Imperial Mango. That's different. That's, that's it different. was a smoothie beer though wasn't it Mm-mm. it was like 11 percent oh, lighter man, that was lighter crazy. than that but okay. yeah like in general like if i want a smoothie and i want it to be alcoholic i can do it cheaply with vodka <laughs> yeah yeah okay so i don't want to pay 10 bucks when i can make the smoothie plus the whole handle of vodka <laughs> for a heck of a lot less and have more alcohol yeah, if I really want right, it. Right. Anyways. So. Whatever. Also, it's a pain in the butt to can. It's <laughs> a pain in the butt. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, guys. This guy is called Secret Machine, and this is for the Sphinx. Yep. Love it. Great name. Great name. Well, my my beer that I've been drinking is from Phase 3 Brewing Company. Uh, I think they're... Phase three is New York, right? Um, well, yeah. Illinois. Oh, that's right. They're yeah, they're Chicago. They're Chicago brew. I, I'm, who am I thinking? Oh, Threes Brewing Company is in New York. Oh, those um, threes. That's where our our friend Jeff, who used to be a brewer out here, he went and worked with them. Um, anyway, though, this is a double dry hopped, double India Pale Ale with Citra and Mosaic hops. You should describe the can art. Uh, the can art is blue and white with these nice kind of. Uh, I don't know, kind of Arabic. Uh, I'm sure there's a name for that symbol. Yeah, but I, don't, I don't know. I don't it. know the design, but it, it's it's like vaguely Arabic, like that kind of dome, like the onion shaped minaret, um, uh, with the blue. But then the white is clouds, which is very appropriate for this book. And the beer itself is called Low Ceilings, which. Uh, <laughs> Much to Senlin's claustrophobic chagrin in the uh, bottomless library. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a book we've read that could be better suited to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like I saw the name first and I was like, oh, that's great. And then I looked closer at the album art and I was like, wow, that's like album art. Yeah, album art. Yeah, can <laughs> art. Uh, that said, we have a final beer. Uh we opened late in the episode and we're splitting here. Cause you uh, have to split. Yeah. This is, uh, <laughs> this is from bottle logic brewing company out in California. Uh, and this was very exciting for me because these guys, uh, have one of the better regarded barrel aging programs in, in the U S um, they're known for their kind of dessert barrel aged stouts and barley wines and old ales and things like that. Uh, and this one is a barrel-aged stout. It's 12% ABV. Uh, but Bottle Logic, uh, for the longest time, it's like, if I'm going to get Bottle Logic, I have to trade for it. And yep. and it, it was not always like, I, I didn't think it was always worth it. Um, I have only had one other Bottle Logic beer before this, and I did really like it. But we went to the, you know, to the beer store today to get some cans of thematically appropriate beer for the episode. And I'm looking through the shelves and I notice, wait a second, there are three different varieties of Bottle Logic barrel-aged beers. 
what the heck? When did they start distributing to Colorado? So I, of course, snapped them all up. And it wasn't until we got home that I actually looked at the name of this one. It's too good to pass up for for uh, these books. Uh, so this is a caramel coffee stout. Uh, Imperial stout aged in bourbon barrels. Finished with caramel and Mostra roasted coffee. Oh, they're famous. Yeah. Um, we've used we've used that. Yeah, they're a big time coffee... Um, I don't know what you would call them. What what that? Roasters. Roasters. Yeah. Um. They're they're a California coffee coffee company. Um. But this is called continuous ignition. <laughs> the core of the tower. The whole thing is one big engine. Cheers, Lauren. Yeah. Mm. And that caramel really comes through. Like, oh, it's hot though. Yeah, it's very boozy. Like the the bourbon, ooh, yeah. The caramel's great, but the the bourbon is still pretty hot. Yeah, and this is a 2022 release, so it's it's fresh. I expect it to cool down with age. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, this has been episode 203 of the Eking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we're going to be doing uh, a little break from Semlin. We're going to be covering a, a, a book that has kind of skyrocketed into the sci-fi fantasy popular consciousness recently. Uh, the Spear Cuts Through Water by Simone Jimenez. Uh, I, I have just heard so much from so many different places, um, so many different people yelling at me to read this book, saying, like, this is the kind of book that I'm going to like. And look, that was the same uh, sort of message I got about Senlin Ascends, and they were right. So uh, we're going to take a little break, do... Uh, I'm not sure yet if we're going to do one or two episodes. Um, I'll, I'll take a look at the book and see kind of how long it is and, and see what the writing is like how much I'm going to want to talk about how long it's going to take me to really read through and digest and think about it but did this just come out uh 2022 August 30th okay so oh is this author published before I I have no idea I had never heard anything about him before uh that's a conversation for those episodes okay I'm I'm excited this is unknown uh yeah so that's what's up next. As always, uh, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud to support the show. Um, that that uh, generosity keeps the lights on, keeps us rolling. And I have like finally gotten myself back in the swing of things, um, getting episodes edited and, well, recorded more than a couple days in advance. Uh <laughs> Uh, recorded in time to edit and release them a week early for the higher tiers on Patreon. You know, and of course we got the the monthly fiction and newsletters and bonus episodes. We just did an episode on uh, a Patreon episode on the six deaths of the saint by Alex Harrow. So good. Yeah. Really good. Um, So consider supporting us there. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey. And with me is my wife, Lauren McCaffrey. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.